case you have missed it, we've been in a sermon series called I Need a New Marriage. We have not called this I Need a New Spouse, so please keep that in mind. I Need a New Marriage. Uh, And listen, we've done a lot of of hard work in these few weeks, and uh, Pastor Jacob held it down last week when a lot of the men in our church were out uh, for our men's retreat, and that was a good time, but uh, we've been doing, we've been putting in the work, if you will, on how to just grow our marriages or potential marriages or, or really how to grow our souls. And that's been really, really important. Well, if you will, we, we do continue in that series today, but our focus is going to shift a little bit. It's going to broaden, if anything, and it will still serve us, okay, in our marriages or eventual marriages. But listen, we cannot fully love ourselves, let alone love someone else, if we don't fully grasp the importance of God's love for us and what that looks like when we live it out. Now, that's a complicated way of asking this question. You should see it on the screen. Here's the question. What does the love of God lived out look like? If you're married, this probably affects your marriage maybe first, okay? And then as you go out from there, if you are blessed with kids, your kids, um, your, your extended family, your work life, your school life, uh, just just all of it. But this question has great implications for us. Now, in, in, in regards to this question, it does bring to mind Easter. And, and I do love this time of year, you know. Um, most days get a little warmer, unlike today, but most other days get warmer. And we're reminded of the greatest expression of love in its sacrifice. Jesus and his sacrifice for you is the greatest expression of love ever recorded or ever known. His his torture and his death only occurred because this love God has for you is bigger than you. It's greater than we could ever know. It is deeper than hell, if you will. And this love causes something to stir within us. So I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had your emotions stirred in such a way like it, it brought something out of you. Maybe it made you cry or something. Uh, The ending, if I'm being really honest, the ending of Home Alone always gets me every single time. I cry. I can't not cry at the end of Home Alone. Few things in this life are guaranteed. Jesus is Lord. You will pay taxes. And Pastor Kevin will cry at the end of Home Alone when the old man gets his family back. I'm getting emotional thinking about it, and I'm going to move on. Because I get my emotions stirred up very, very easily. I love a good story, and I'm not going to apologize for that, but I digress. Have you had your emotions stirred by something? Okay, maybe it was a movie, or a book, or a song, or a moment with someone. Maybe maybe it was something with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was prayer, something happened in worship, and it just compelled you. It, It stirred something different inside of you. Okay, let's elevate this question a little bit. Let's dig a little deeper. Uh, Has something ever stirred your soul? Like the very fiber of your being was changed. It's not just a momentary emotional response where the man gets his family back, but it's something that is stirred deeper within you, and you are forever changed because of it. Because that is the sort of change sacrificial love causes. And that's the love we're going to talk about today, because this love 
Yes, it is the greatest expression of love, but it also changes everything. And when someone is looking for meaning and purpose and significance, you find sacrificial love and it anchors your soul in a way that you, are, you now live completely different. John 15, 13. Let me throw some scriptures at you really quick. Uh, this is true. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Sacrifice. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? Sacrificial love. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I remember this in that King James English, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him has everlasting life. Flashbacks to VBS 1999, right? That's right. It's sacrificial love. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So what does the love of God lived out look like? We, we have this ultimate example right here. Perhaps the greatest theme in the canon of Scripture is sacrificial love. And we are going to examine a single chapter today. And because I'm not a very good preacher, it'll probably take two weeks. Okay, Romans 12. We're going to start in Romans 12 today. We'll see how far we get, okay? And then uh, pick it back up next week. So if you, have, if you have your Bible, go ahead and pick it up, Romans 12. We're not really going to hop around much. But we're going to look at what this love looks like lived out. Uh, and so as you turn there, uh, I want you to know this was written by the Apostle Paul. That is the road to Damascus Paul, okay? And it's his longest single letter, Romans is, with 16 chapters. And these chapters stick to the same theme. The gospel changes everything. God's love for you, it changes everything. God's sacrificial love for you changes everything. And we are reading chapter 12. It's a great book. Read it on your own. Uh, but chapter 12, let's jump in. Verse 1, okay? Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, pay attention to that, maybe highlight it, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. We'll, we'll stop right there. The implications from this very first verse are immense. And so if you're the note taker, write this down. If you got your phone out, you shouldn't, but go ahead and get your notes out, okay? Write this down. How you live matters. It really does. How you live matters. And this is so important, okay, track with me right here. Uh, this is not written to the world. What Paul just wrote is not written to non-believers, but it's specifically for an audience. Who are they? How are they identified? They're identified as brothers and sisters. These are not biological brothers and sisters. That'd be weird. This is the family of faith, brothers and sisters of the way of Jesus. So don't read this, or honestly, any of Romans 12, without this in mind, that this is for believers. So the standards we're going to read about are for followers of Jesus and no one else. Okay, Don't take this as a measuring stick to beat up your lost 
family member or your lost neighbor, okay? This is, if you, if you say, I follow Christ, this is for you, okay? Now, there's a catalyst to this verse, though. There's a catalyst here to this life of purpose and meaning. And Paul says it right here. The catalyst, and I had it underlined, is in view of God's mercy. The catalyst to following the way of Christ is Christ. Not programs, not religious living, not social change, but through the view of God's mercy. And what and who is God's mercy? You know this. Come on, his last name's Christ. Come on, Jesus, right? That, that, is, that, is, that is the mercy of God. But it's still a very interesting phrase how Paul phrased this, in view of God's mercy, meaning everything that follows this statement should come from the perspective that God is good and merciful to us, and that instead of punishing us for our sins, God allowed Jesus to be punished in our place. That's mercy. And so, in view of that, in view of that reality, in view of God's mercy, we are then to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. But sometimes our view gets blocked. Have you ever had a bad view? You're at a concert, you're at a game, someone tall, maybe named Jeremiah, sits, comes, stands right in front of you, you know? Have you ever been in a, in a spot where you see the tall person like walking in there, the row ahead of you, and you may not be religious, but you start praying, please God, no, please God, no. Like, no, nah, not in front of me, not in front of me, you know. So I, I, I say, I've had my view blocked before. I was at, uh, I, it, was a, it was a time where I was at a, a game, and honestly, nothing makes you have a worse time than a bad view. And this is, honestly, go with me here, here's the illustration. I think this is how many Christians, we live our lives. Okay? Something happens in life, and we take our focus off the mercy of God, and that mercy gets blocked. His mercy isn't in view anymore, as we've taken our eyes off of it, and, pra and, and practically, it doesn't take much for some of us to lose our religion sometimes, when we take our focus off the mercy of God. Someone is rude to you at work. Our spouse refuses to help. Our kids won't listen, you know, the examples go on. And slowly we take our focus off of God's mercy, because Paul says in view of God's mercy, but sometimes we take our view off of God's mercy and onto frustrating circumstances. So how do you think you're going to respond when your view gets blocked? We're not focused on God's mercy, so we become something else entirely. We walk around easily triggered. We walk around wounded. We walk around annoyed. That annoys me when people are annoyed, if I'm being really honest. It annoys me when I'm annoyed, you know? And we want to blame, right, other situations. We want to, we want to blame other people. Well, if you didn't do this, I wouldn't do that. If, if, if things weren't going this way, then I wouldn't be doing this. I just think sometimes we're not willing to move. You know, the view gets blocked, and we're not really willing to do anything about it except complain. And when we have the people we complain to who kind of listen, you know, and, and they complain with us. But Paul, listen, the Apostle Paul, he knows this is vital to our walk with God because he starts the message with, I urge you, 
He's saying, I urge you. In view of God's mercy, I'm, I'm urging you to stay focused on God's mercy and not be, if you will, so easily offended. Could I, could I, I urge you this morning to focus on God's mercy and maybe not be so stingy? Mm. Maybe, maybe, maybe not be so cynical. Come on, could I, could I urge you to focus on God's mercy and maybe ask the person blocking your view to sit down? Because honestly, if, if, I, think, I think our view of God's mercy may be on the other side of a difficult conversation. Like someone that we're just avoiding. We're like, well, I'm not a, I'm not a conflict person. I don't want to embrace this. I don't, I don't want to do this. But it's eating us alive. It's really distracting us at times. If you will, it's blocking our view of God's mercy. So I want to ask, so what is blocking you from being gracious toward others today? What's blocking you from remembering the sacrificial love of Christ? What is blocking your heart from peace today? What's blocking your view of God's mercy in your life? It could be any number of things. But that means that we need to do something to get that view back. So Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, okay, with the sacrifice of Christ in mind, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is really hard, I think, for us to understand here in the West, here in the United States, because what Paul has in mind for sacrifice is not what we have in mind for sacrifice. You know, maybe for you, sacrifice is, you know what, I will be more disciplined in my spending, Paul. That's a good point. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what this is. Uh, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices is to simply approach God with no demands. And that's the difference in accepting, go with me for a second, that's the difference in accepting Jesus as Savior or surrendering to Jesus as Savior because I think when we accept the terms, when we accept Jesus, if you will, I think we still have demands. All right, now that I follow Jesus, Jesus, I need you to do this and this and this and this. I accept you, which is a preposterous thing to say, but I accept you and here are my demands. But when you surrender to the way of Jesus, it's, it's not a matter of, of giving your demands. You just have a simple question. What now, Lord? What's next for me, my life, my family? What is next? Surrender is what Paul means when he says this is holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Proper worship is surrender. Not still holding on to a few things that you like, make you comfortable. But it's fully surrendering. Okay? Uh, moving ahead to verse 2. Verse 2. We're 15 minutes in. Verse 2. I don't think we're going to finish this chapter today, y'all. You don't want me to. And that's okay. All right, I'm not offended. You don't want me to do that today. So, verse 2. Remember, we have God's mercy in mind. What's his mercy? Last name, Christ. His mercy is Jesus. Jesus, right? Okay, we have that in mind, right? And, and here we are. We, we are willing to be living sacrifices. And now we have this instruction. Verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, 
His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm not going to lie. Write that down. Highlight that. If you got your Bible, take a picture of that right now. Uh, Because if you want to know the will of God for our lives, and you can, then it's on the other side of something. It's on the other side of renewing our minds. And, And while that is difficult, Paul gives us a clue to it, and it's the opening phrase of verse two. Okay, the opening phrase do not conform to the pattern of this world. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, here comes the hammer. He's going to preach about every social movement that's evil, all the evil and terrible things going on in the world, how sinful everything is. Here it comes. Don't be conformed to it. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I've heard that message plenty of times. And while there are real problems, there is real evil and very real sin to be found in the world, church, there's an alternative to this. That's half of the statement. Yes, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but what? But be transformed. Man, I think some of us really get hung up and begin to like war with culture about that first part. We forget about the transformed part, right? It's like I'm willing to fight for God. And the thing about a transformed life is that often that life means that we give it up. I think some of us are willing to fight for God, but we are not really ready to die for God because it requires sacrifice. This isn't just about avoiding sin, is what I'm saying. That's not what this is about. It's not about avoiding those things and sin, but it's about replacing those old patterns of thinking and living. Because listen, it is not enough. This is going to get me in trouble. Ready? Yeah, you are. It is not enough to just try and avoid sin. That is empty religious teaching. One of my pastor friends always says, don't smoke, don't chew, don't date folks who do, right? Because faith kind of gets summed up as the list of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. You can't do this, you can't do that. The spirit of Ned Flanders is here. If you're happy and you know it, that's a sin, right? Like, That's terrible. And some of us have been taught that's Jesus. It's the don'ts. Don't do this and don't do that. Don't think that thought. Don't go down there. You know, don't, 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 don't. We've been don'ted into our faith. Don't sin. Again, I think, just my opinion here, okay? I think some of us have been given a formula for sin avoidance, and we've been told, That is what faith looks like. I'm not going to lie. That's absolute trash. And it will breed a self-righteousness inside of you because you think I can keep the law with the things I don't do and by the things I do. You can read about what that happens with the Pharisees in the New Testament. It doesn't work out well for them. The gospel is so much more than just sin avoidance. This is about life change. It's about transformation. Okay, I, I was I was uh, remembering this week when I learned to ride a bike, and that was a disaster. I'm not gonna lie, it was a disaster. But when I was trying to learn to ride a bike, I would fall a lot, and eventually, you know, you go 10 feet and then you fall, 20 feet and then you fall, and eventually, you know, you get better at it. Well, 
I, I remember at the bottom of our hill or something, I, I do forget if it was a tree or a telephone pole, because when you're a kid, everything is gigantic and scary. So there's just the, a big wooden circle at the bottom of our driveway. And I didn't want to hit it. I didn't want to hit it. I did not want to hit it. So as I'm learning to ride a bike, I I can't overstate this enough. I didn't want to hit it. So what had my attention? The big stupid tree at the bottom, right? Couldn't take my eyes off of it. So here I am, probably 30, 40 yards from it, and I can't stop looking at it. I don't want to hit it, God, please. And then my, I think my feet came off the pedals. I was going too fast anyway, and I just kept staring. God, please don't let me hit this thing. And then it hit me. You will collide with the things you focus on. You absolutely will. And so if your understanding of faith is simply sin avoidance, I don't want to sin. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be whatever, fill in the blank. I don't want to be self-righteous. I don't want to be greedy. I don't want to uh, sin sexually. I don't want to look at pornography. I don't want to do this. I don't. If that is all your faith is, one day you are going to hit it. Here, here's my simple point. You should see it on the screen. Sin avoidance does not equate to a vibrant relationship with God. It just doesn't. And Jesus demonstrated this when he taught of a higher law than those precious Ten Commandments. Rather than give us a list of thou shall not do this and thou shall not do that, Jesus gave us the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Instead of focusing on a list of ten things to avoid, Jesus explained how 613 commandments could actually be summed up into two directives. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving your neighbor, these are pure, honest, just, and virtuous, and worthy things. In fact, the very definition of sin focuses on the positive in the book of James, which is ironic. And James is believed to be Jesus' little brother, right? Listen, if that's not the biggest like, reason you should believe in Christ, the little brother was like, yeah, he's, Je- he- he's Lord. Would your little sibling say that about you? No! They, they, would, they would destroy you. But James, who didn't have a last name, James is like, yeah, my brother, he's the Christ. He defines sin this way, James 4, 17, and this one hurts. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. That's less hellfire and brimstone and more of, if you don't take care of the poor, that's a sin. If you don't look after widows and orphans, for you, it is sin. If you know you should be the hands and feet of Jesus to a lost world, and you refuse, for you, it is sin. Listen, many, many sermons are preached about not conforming to the pattern of this world, and I'm not here to try to discredit them, okay? Those are important, but sometimes that's all that gets presented. It's only half the truth. Consider this. I've got a real-life example for you this morning, okay? Try this. Let's do a little thought experiment here. Ready? 
We're going to try this in real time. Do not think of a giraffe. Do not think of those spots. Don't think of that long neck. Do not think of a giraffe. Don't think of the height. Don't think of that gross, blue, wiry-looking tongue, you know? Don't think of a giraffe. Okay, how'd you do? Right? Right? Like, you know. Oh, okay, I don't want to think of a, of a giraffe. Because your mind will typically bring an image to mind and register it before you can do anything with it. So despite our best intentions, our minds, our nervous system, our biology really doesn't cooperate with our faith all that much. Now, for our marriages, I think we can focus on what's wrong and what needs improvement. Um, I, I think uh, growth and challenge should take place, for sure. But if that's all you ever think about, if that's all you ever discuss, I mean, what's the state of that marriage? Because, listen, you're not married to a strict algebra professor. No offense. But you're married to someone who loves you or who at least at one point loved you. You're married to someone that you love, or at least at one point you love. So let's ask the positive. What are you getting right in your marriage? What is your spouse, your husband, your wife, what are they doing well right now? Because I know we've done some good work, some intentional work in this series about how to grow and, and be challenged and grow with Christ. And, and it's all very, very important. But what is your spouse doing right? What if on the drive home today, after you talk about how cold it was, what if you said, honey, you're doing a great job with whatever. I'm so proud of the ways that you Yes, avoid sin. Yes, repent when it happens. Also, focus on what is going well, on what God is doing in your life, on how he's transforming your life, and the ways that you are growing, because what you focus on magnifies and multiplies. Okay, it's like a, it's like a tornado. The more, the closer you get to it, it's going to suck you right into it, okay? Despair is real. Cynicism is real. And, and we need to be mindful of that. So, what does the, the process of renewing our mind actually look like, though? Because, Pastor, that sounds nice and all. That's a good illustration. But, like, what does this actually look like? I'm really glad you asked these questions when I answer them in my outline next. So, renewing, renewing our mind is simple, but it is not easy. Okay, those are not synonyms. It is simple, but it is not easy. Our patterns can be identified and changed by, here's the first one, write, write this down. Choosing to focus on Christ. Choosing to focus on Christ. Well, pastor, I got hurt at the last church we were at, and I don't know about that, and I just, no. Okay, don't focus on church. You focus on Christ. Oh, but pastor, it's just, you know, there's some things in Genesis, certainly Leviticus and Revelation. I don't really understand. I don't know about the Bible. Okay. 
choose to focus on Christ. Oh, but I doubt and I struggle in this, in that. Choose to focus on Christ. His sacrificial love for you is unmatched. And honestly, it is good for your soul to to, to, to sit with that, to, to be grateful for, to be reminded of. You choose to focus on Christ. The second one, focusing on God's mercy and his love for us. Here we are already echoing verse one again in view of God's mercy. This is the God who allowed his son to take our place. And that's the radical love and true identity our culture longs for that we have opportunities to show them in both word and deed. This third one, this third one is a doozy, I'm not going to lie, okay? And I don't use the word doozy ever, so you know it's important. Maybe I do, my wife would know. Number three, reminding ourselves our primary identity is Christ and Christ alone. Do you, are you picking up a theme, right? It's all about Jesus, okay? Okay, I'm just going to take a deep breath. We can all take a deep breath. This is going to be very unpopular. Love you, our primary identity is Christ and Christ alone. I think you can be involved in various things in the world, uh, socially, politically, and I think you can follow Christ. I think you can disagree politically and follow Christ. I think you can disagree socially and follow Christ about different things. No matter what your favorite culture warrior or internet personality tells you, no political party has claimed Christ because a political party cannot claim Christ. Christ is beyond that, okay? And here is the problem in this thinking, okay, of, of like, well, I'm on this side and, and I'm over here. Um, it's, it's, it's statements and it, it seems small. And you may think I'm nitpicky, but I'm not. I promise I'm not, okay? But it, again, sounds harmless, but it comes out like, well, I'm a progressive Christian. I'm a conservative Christian. I'm a fill-in-the-blank Christian. And I, I say this in love. I do. Uh, there should simply be no identifier, no pretext, nothing ahead of Christian, either he is savior and he is our primary identity or he's not because you can be a Christian and then you can follow all of those things with whatever else you want in there. But when we start identifying with things ahead of our faith, that reveals something very important about our hearts and our priorities and our idols. I do not follow Apollos. I do not, I do not follow Paul. I do not follow anyone. I follow Christ. We choose Christ. So, so church, listen, be active in your community. Knock yourself out. Be kind on Facebook, please. But may your faith be what leads you to action. Don't co-opt faith that fits nice into this one little thing of your life that you like. No, faith should guide you. That's it. Now we can move on. Okay, see, that's, that's all we did. That's okay, right? Now, if you are new to this, though, if you're new to, to faith or you're like, man, I, I'd like to take it seriously for the first time or I'd like to create new patterns in my walk. Okay, I got you covered. Ready? Uh, under the submission of God's love and mercy in your life, which simply means, hey, 
This, this, is, this is where I'm at, okay? Follow Christ. The first thing is to spend time in prayer. And that sounds so simple. It's not always easy though, right? So yeah, you could close the door. You could fall on your knees. You could pray. You can also pray on your drive to work. I didn't know that until an embarrassing age. I think I was 12 years old before I realized you don't always have to close your eyes when you pray. You can pray in the shower. You can pray as you make dinner. You can pray before you eat dinner. You can pray as you put your children to bed. You can pray with your spouse. As it says in the New Testament, pray without ceasing. Prayer is way more than just words, but prayer is your whole posture toward life. There is not one way to pray. Just, just start. It starts with God. And sometimes that's all you can get out because you're so desperate, and that's okay. Just pray. Uh, read scripture is our second one. Okay? Um, be, if you're new to the faith, I would highly recommend books like the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I would highly recommend Paul's letters to the various churches in the New Testament. I would highly recommend most of Genesis. Listen, it's all good. It all points uh, to the goodness of God and his sacrificial love. But without context and a bit of experience, some passages can simply be difficult to understand and appreciate. But no matter what, read your Bible. Uh, I remember growing up, I, I heard a pastor say, and this is cheesy, but I love it, okay? Uh, a worn-out Bible usually belongs to someone who isn't. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And Because we are to be active in, in reading the Word of God. And then third, this is my last one, is that we would serve others. That we would serve others. And I know this kind of pushes back on maybe a more modern trend of, hey, lead others, how to be a more effective leader, how to spend your time wisely as a leader. This is, this is about serving. Serving in your local church, by the way, it does a number of things for your soul. And it draws you closer to your community, closer to the heart of God. But here's the warning. It comes with a cost. Whoever you surround yourself with, whether it's church or not, it comes with a cost. Just because it gets hard, it doesn't mean you have an excuse to leave. Because healthy community requires sacrifice. Healthy relationships demand honesty. Otherwise, they're not healthy. A healthy local body of believers will cost you your pride and your preferences and some of your wants but it's good for your soul. And there are so many more things I could say about this, but we are running out of time today. But once we begin this training and renewing of our minds, the will of God, according to Scripture, the will of God becomes clearer and clearer. Of course, that topic alone is another sermon for another day. But speaking of serving, Romans 12 continues verse 3. Let's actually read more than one verse this time. Verse 3, Paul writes, remember after verse 1, after verse 2, what comes next? Yeah, some of you are there. Yeah, yeah, okay, number 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. 
For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. Amen. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Remain humble in your marriages, at work, at home, with your friends, in your local church. Because we are not all gifted the same, nor are we all called exactly the same. And so we remain humble, yes, but we do not sink into despair because it's easy to look upon others and say, well, I don't have that confidence. Well, I don't have that skill. I don't have those talents. I don't have that calling. Don't get lost in that. God is calling you and your unique giftedness to bring Him glory, to serve in your local community. But don't get caught up in that comparison game. I've heard, I've heard this said so many times, and I, and I love it. Don't let success go to your head, but don't let failure go to your heart. It takes a balance because you have been gifted by God and called to use those gifts in your local church. And it is a joy, an absolute joy, to be used by God, no matter how it appears on the surface, because there are no small roles in the kingdom of God, and we complement one another for the glory of God. And honestly, that's also our approach to, to church life and other churches, even in our awesome city, because there are plenty of great churches in our awesome City, find one, but be involved in one. Whether it's here or somewhere else, we complement one another, we complete one another for the cause of Christ. So we have to pause right there today. But let's finish Romans 12 next week. Uh, bring a friend and bring some expectations that God wants to move. As we will cover a section, if you have your Bible, you can see it, maybe. Uh, in yours, it's called Marks of a True Christian. Um, it's, it's a very, very important uh, aspect of Romans 12. I think others call it love in action. Um, it, is, it is so important nonetheless, where we are going to finish with our question, what does the love of God lived out look like? Uh, team, if you want to come on, come on back up and, and join me. But for the rest of us, Right now, today, God wants you to take a step with him. There is no doubt about that in my mind. So what does that look like? What is that? Is it time that you actually relinquish control in your life and you trust God for the first time? Maybe you place your faith in Christ to save you because Jesus has everything your soul longs for belonging, identity, grace, love, eternal life. The list goes on and on. Or is it time for you to get off the fence? Because maybe you say, I do believe. I'm just not committed. I'm uninvolved. 
half in, half out. I think it's time that you stop playing around and you fully embrace a new life and love with God. Or maybe you have an area of faith or life that you doubt and you struggle with. Jesus literally offers you peace. Before he ascended to heaven, Jesus gave some some directives. And one that I really cling to. He says, peace I give you and peace I leave with you. And so if your soul is not at peace today, I mean, we can look at circumstances in life and say, oh, my life is crazy. It's, it's really, uh, I'm not resting. I'm, it's hard for me to get into a rhythm of, of things. I, I feel chaotic. Okay, Jesus certainly offers you peace in the midst of those things. But like, there's a deeper longing of our souls and our hearts that long for a peace that only comes from God through Christ. Who could use some peace today? Would you mind to please stand? Our band is going to lead us in a song, and after the first song, Pastor Jacob will have some encouragement for us. But then we're going to continue in worship for two or three more songs after that. Um, and so right now, let's just reflect and hold this. I'll pray for us, and we'll get into our first song here. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for um, the ways that you are speaking to us, the ways that we don't expect you to speak to us, because you are near. You are not far off watching. Watching a struggle. But you are near. You are with us. And you offer us peace. So I pray we would, we would let go of control. We would let go of how we want life or what we think our life should be. And we would just simply embrace this, this posture of surrender to Christ and Christ alone. So, Father, speak to us as we reflect, as we worship. Draw us near to you. In Jesus' name.